Hi, Mom. Hey, Mom. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Rider Reviews. It's another episode. Hey, it's Kyle. You made it this far. Just listen to the rest of it, please. Um, hey, Zach. Uh, okay, yeah. We're on the, today on this week's episode, we're featuring co-host Kyle and Zach. Baby, baby, E's asleep. Uh, hey, Zach, what movie are we reviewing today? We are reviewing The Shining in anticipation for Doctor Sleep that's coming out in November. That's right. We wanted to uh, do a quick review before we get into Doctor Sleep, the movie that'll be coming out. When is it coming out? Early November. Yeah. Next month. Yeah. So we are in preparation, doing this one before that. And plus, it is also around Halloween time, so we thought it would be a good season for horror movie reviews. Yeah. So it's, we are going to dig into it. It's spooky season. Spooks! Zach, does this movie give you the spooks? This movie definitely gives me the spooks. Every How many spooks would you get? <laughs> hey, that's what we'll have to do. I think that's what we should do. I think we should do spooks instead of spanks. Spooks or slaps. For spooky season? <laughs> oh my gosh, it erodes my heart. <laughs> well, yeah, let's start it off. So, uh, so hey Kyle, give a basic summary of the film. like. Okay, well, uh, before I give my brief summary, I'm just going to tell you uh, what Kubrick's brief summary always was, was that it was about a family going quietly insane together was his very brief one sentence summary of the movie which I thought was always kind of interesting as because he's looking at it as a family as a whole going insane together but uh, basically this uh, to summarize it this movie is about uh, this character Jack he's going to a uh, do an interview to become the caretaker at a hotel the Overlook Hotel um, so he goes and does the interview and come to find out he gets the job and so then it kind of goes back and forth between Danny his son and his wife Shelly at home and him during the interview and when he phones him tells him he got the job whatever so then they move there they, he gets the job and then they uh, are basically going to be taking care of this hotel uh, during the winter months from what was it like October or November or something like that? Yeah, October to May. To May, yeah. So for seven months, basically, that they were going to be taking care of it. And during this time, uh, Jack is a teacher, but he's quit teaching to become uh, to write a book to kind of yeah get more into his writing. So he is trying to use this time as an opportunity to finish his book, um, and so. Basically, it's just about them staying at this Overlook Hotel during the winter months, being snowed in, and them sort of developing this cabin fever uh, where they kind of go off the rails. Jack kind of uh, becomes manic, and uh, it's touching on that as much as it is about the horrors of this hotel and some of the possible... Uh, ghost presences that um, make up the hotel. Um, so then 
yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the gist overall. Yeah, and then, uh, sums it up pretty well, actually, without giving away, like, too much what happened. Yeah, that's the best you can get when it comes to this film. Like, I just, I, I, when I, like, initially, like, when I first watched it, I would describe it just as Jack Nicholson running around threatening his wife, his son is telepathic, and his wife is really skinny with dark hair, and there's randomly a bear performing fellatio on someone. Yeah. <laughs> so this movie came out about almost 40 years ago, and so if you haven't seen it... <laughs> Then it's probably uh, you probably just don't care at this point because it's been around for that long and you still haven't watched it. So. Yeah. Like, but if you are wanting to watch it, I strongly urge you to go see it. It will change how you view cinema. This movie, and this, filmmaking. This movie changed the way people watch movies. This was a movie I believe that was well ahead of its time. This is definitely one of Stanley Kubrick's most iconic films. Yeah. Actually, this was uh, where was this at in the. Uh, his filmography. I believe this was around this, 10 or 11. This was right after Barry Lyndon, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So this was his third to last film. He did Full Metal Jacket and then Eyes Wide Shut were his last two films. So he, um, yeah, he was becoming more and more reclusive as a filmmaker, more and more selective. Um, you would notice this kind of in his later works that the years in between each film. Uh, were expanding so it would take him like five this was five years after Barry Lyndon that was that was uh, back to back right there and then seven years later till he did Full Metal Jacket so yeah it was kind of interesting how it's almost as if he was just uh, trying to attach every little detail that he could into all of his works like he didn't have to he wasn't having to live um, to up to anyone else's standards. He was allowed to kind of work on his own time um, and basically create whatever he wanted to at that point because he was already such a well-known director, was well-respected, was allowed to do all the final cutting of his own films. So, yeah, I mean, what do you guys think? He literally did it all. He directed, produced wrote this screenplay mm -hmm. and like this is based on The Shining by Stephen King who is like this is one of my top an Stephen avid hater of the film yeah like he actually <laughs> hates this film but this is one of my favorite Stephen King films next to The Stand and Green Mile never saw The Stand you're whack they're remaking <laughs> it they actually are remaking it with uh, Alex Smith I mean Alex um, the quarterback no the guy from <laughs> The guy from uh, he's got to find a new career. The guy, right? the guy from Hereditary. The main, he was in Death Note and Hereditary. Oh yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah he was also in the Naked Brothers Band. But that's besides the point. They're remaking the Stand. It's a really good Stephen King novel. Well, that'll be interesting. Um, but so Doctor Sleep is also going to be a Stephen based on the Stephen King novel, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see where that movie will hold up in our uh, Stephen King films. Right. And then as far as assistant, who was recalling hearing thumps for hours 
Yes, that was interesting. Every three minutes, he could he could decide within a couple minutes of whether or not he was going to want to do a book. And uh, I like how his action was always just to throw the book across the room <laughs> if he didn't like it. Because like, that's the most appropriate <laughs> response for a grown adult is to literally <laughs> throw objects. Like, Yeah. But uh, yeah, there's definitely some interesting uh, concepts that came out of this film. Um, and when you compare it to the Stephen King, the original novel... Was it a novel? It was yeah, a novel. Yeah, it's, it's a novel. So uh, it's interesting how uh, it's almost an inversion, completely uh, different from the book itself. It's as if Kubrick wanted it to be something totally different and unique on its own standing. Even with the film style alone was different. Yeah. Like, how would you describe the film style, Kyle, like the way they shot the movie in itself? Well, <clears throat> one thing, and this was kind of typical in Kubrick's catalog, was he, when he shot a film, he would like, he liked to use wide angle lenses. Um, this was one of the first films to feature the Steadicam, and that was, uh, the creator was Garrett Brown, who, um, I don't know if you guys have ever watched, but he does like an actual uh, he does commentary on The Shining, so if you ever have a chance to listen to that, you should. It's actually pretty interesting. He talks about uh, some of Kubrick's methods behind the scenes and him, how many shots they would take. But uh, Kubrick always wanted to have uh, a great depth of field, like uh, perception. So that way, a viewer could see almost everything that was in the background because it's a subplot. It's like all these uh, unique characteristics of the movie that are brought about not in the forefront, but kind of in that background. Like he just kind of leaves it there subtly. And that way, you know, you get movies like this, like The Shining, where people to this day are still trying to interpret what some of the meanings are because there's so much attention to detail there where you can see every little thing that's on in the camera view and how it keeps popping up time and time again. Um, but yeah, the wide angle lens, uh, even Garrett Brown had talked about this, how uh, they like to basically shoot from a little bit of a lower vantage point. And the reason that is is because with the wide angle lens, if you move it too much or you move it up too high, it'll distort the uh, images to where it's uh, not, correct and its detail and like its relation to how everything is around the characters so it was kind of interesting hearing him talk about that yeah it was really interesting like when you watch these films like the way they like open up a wide angle scene it's like you'll see in movies when they have a wide angle shot mm -hmm. you don't see everything in the background it's like a, just yeah. a complete blur but he made it to where everything was noticeable and there was a purpose for that like he just wasn't throwing things in there just to have them in there. Like he had a purpose behind everything, supposedly. Yeah. I mean, and Kubrick, Kubrick was very careful about when he would do a like, kind of a close-up view of someone, like yeah. a character's face. Like you remember the zoom in, like that zoom in of Jack Nicholson's face as you like see how his like um, manic state is starting to set in. Like he's as like Danny and Shelley are uh, walking through the maze. And it's almost like a revelation of the disturbance of Jack's own mind and uh, in comparison with the hotel, you know? So I thought that was a very interesting film trope. That's another trope I really liked in the movie was the uh, 
the maze and its relation to uh, his disturbed mind and his own inability to uh, essentially get out of it, you know? think like you know like with the title cards even how it would explore like like different time periods it's like it's such a jumbled mess like Monday and then it goes to Wednesday then to Friday like he was keeping and, on your toes like it like was like a like you know like it wasn't like a set thing like yeah. looks so, like I never heard of the shine like I was there when the shine originally came out it was like kept switching days yeah because like which in the like book every the, other day because in the like he definitely there's definitely differences from the book Cause um, shout out to Audible. Like I listened to the book on Audible, and um, there's definitely a lot of differences in the book with the characters act, oh, and definitely the time jumps too, and the transitions. Right. It'd just be like one month later, or like three months later. I'm like, well, oh, okay, what's what's going on? What's the big idea here? Well, then you would notice too, like we lose our perception of time during all of that. Yeah. Because it jumps from not only yeah months to days to whatever, then it jumps to hours, literally hours. And then all of a sudden, it's like we have no idea anymore like what day we're on. And I think maybe that's something that was strategically planned by Kubrick. Um, as much as it was that maze to uh, even the, how uh, the construction of the Overlook Hotel came about. How they had impossible windows or how it just didn't make sense from the inside logistically like that was an impossible door like there that door would lead to nowhere it's like the winchester house almost because the winchester house which is also a very haunted house supposedly Mm -hmm. if you believe in ghosts that's another thing about this movie there's like there's another thing like is this movie about ghosts there's about like mental illness like how nuts this family is like one comparison i'd bring it to is like hereditary which is nothing like the shining but also, like the only thing that like reminds reminds me of it is like the hereditary was less about demon possession, mm-hmm. but more about like a family falling into like yeah. mental illness over the death of their um, daughter, mm-hmm. and this is about the collapse of like a family. With um, do you want to touch on the the situation between the bear and like the comparison to? Uh... Yeah. Um, so Zach, I don't know. Have you ever watched? Um... What happened with Danny? Like, uh, have you ever read up or anything about the uh, correlation with bears and uh, like the possibility of uh, sexual abuse with Danny? Oh boy, yeah. I think you were telling me about that, and I uh, looked up. I don't know if that's in Room Two Three Seven, the documentary, or if you had just told me the theory. But yeah, it's a really so creepy theory. Yeah, so there is a, there's another correlation that uh, actually it's a avid uh, film fan of Kubrick. His name was Rob Ager, I believe. 
Yeah. And he uh, does these YouTube videos on The Shining where he talks about a uh, correlation there with Danny and bears and how uh, any time uh, you get like the mirroring, like Danny in the bathroom, and then it matches up with like a similar shot of the bear towards the end that's giving fellatio to the gentleman. And then you remember like the beginning part where Danny blacks out after he um, is asking, uh, what's his friend, his, uh, what's his friend's name? Uh, Dick Helen. Tony. Tony. The little yeah. boy. He, and then he blacks out after he sees, um, he shines what's going to happen in the hotel. And then uh, as you see the doctor examining him on his bed, you also see a bear that he's laying beside on that's this like pillow. And so we get kind of Danny in his bedroom uh, talking to his doctor and she's asking him like, uh, who's your friend, Tony? And uh, she has to speak to him and he says no. And she says, why not? Because he hides and she hide, uh, he hides in his stomach. Like he's a little boy that lives inside my mouth. And so there's, there's some definite sexual connotation there. And that kind of like where it mirrors like how uh, Shelly makes the discovery um, when she goes up the stairs of that bear that's giving fellatio to the, the gentleman in the room. And it's kind of like a discovery of, uh, you know, her maybe discovering that like it's Danny a, is being abused. Because it's, it's like a final realization because yeah. you see um, Danny and Jack upstairs and he's wearing one sweater with Mickey Mouse punting a football. Mm -hmm. And then the next scene is him with bruises. Like the next time, like they're all in the same right. room together right. is when um, he has bruises on his neck and he's wearing the Apollo 11 sweater. And there's, there's also, uh, not only that, there's also the bear scene or the bear picture. That's the right above Danny's bed when they go to the Overlook hotel or the bear pillow. Yeah. So it's like, there's definite uh, correlations there with the bedroom and uh, bears and uh, yeah it just kind of makes you uh, wonder like that has to be that must have been intentional right there's no other like, way that wasn't because there's there's like too many correlations there like it, and there's like kind of odd references like odd you know things going on during those times like where it's like okay like something is up here and but, like when you um, like, and there's definitely reactions like the way he acts when he's around his parents. Like he's very definitely isolated from his family. He and seems like, more attached to his mom to me. Yeah, like he's more fearful of his father. Like his mom's the protector, right? And so that's like where he has his internal struggles because his dad's. If this theory is correct, his dad's molesting him. So. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. Is that and that becomes part of the discovery. Um, when Danny goes into room 237, and like you had said uh, just a minute ago, about how he comes out with the bruises on his neck. And uh, when, um, is it Wendy? Yeah. Wendy thinks yeah, that, uh, that uh, he did it, that Jack did it. Jack is denying it, and then he goes into room 237 when Wendy claims that there was someone up in the room, and then it cuts to him and he goes into the room and then again it's like you have the bedroom and then the, he goes into the bathroom and I think that's the um, 
correlation there where he discovers what he has done to his own son, his own son. Like he's, he discovers the horrors of his own deeds almost. And that's kind of what I perceive it as. Like those long shots where he's just staring in like despair. Yeah. Cause like he's either a, like he's also like, Hey, he's going insane and B he realizes like what he did to his own child. And like, that's, is yeah. almost unforg- that's unforgivable that's at that the, point. But I mean, that's one of the most creepy scenes for me in this whole entire movie is the the bathroom scene with the naked woman and then how she's just kind of like laughing and like kind of just following him after he like sees her in the mirror and sees her decomposing body after he touches her. Yeah, he sp- it spooks him for sure. And <laughs> that was definitely a spook. One, a couple spooks there. Yeah, there's a couple spookies there. So. Rising, yeah. Well, it kind of—I don't know. I could see it as like maybe the 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 rise of uh, you know allowing you know the these other I don't know what you call them machination machination. What do you call it of the mind? Like what the mind creates. Manifestation. manifestation. Yeah, maybe it's like a manifestation of the hotel that's kind of it's coming up out of the grave and it's revealing itself to uh, all the characters now. Like Jack, we didn't think he was shying, but now like he's even becoming witness to it. Like he's noticing like what's going on. But I mean, that's that's one possibility. But uh, yeah, it, again, it's like there's just so many uh, open ended. Uh, interpretations here of this film that it's really hard to like point out any single thing. There's like when it comes to Stanley Kubrick in this film, this honestly is his film that I believe people pulled the most mystery and lore out of. Oh, absolutely. Like Full Metal Jacket, one of my it's by far my favorite Stanley Kubrick film. But Full Metal Jacket is pretty straightforward. It's about sex and violence. Um, a Clockwork Orange is about a dis- A Clockwork Orange is pretty straightforward. Yeah. It's still pretty it's it's Stanley Kubrick when it came to his films like they all had like a level of mystery to them, but this, this one far. this is by far is literally that one film. And like yeah, I, Eyes Wide Shut kinda had that with me too a little bit. Like there's something like it kinda had carried like over some of that, you know, kind of mystery, enigmatic nature to it, where it's like you're still to this day, we're still trying, we're struggling to, um, you know, form the entirety of the ideas. And I think that would almost be doing this film a disservice because I don't think a film like this is meant to have only one idea or one meaning thematic element to it that it's like a central theme of what it's trying to get across. It's, it's literally hundreds oh. upon thousands of like, you were concepts t- that have been placed into this. Like you read that essay written by someone that takes 12 hours to read. Yeah. Yeah, so there is an online um, essay that you can go and read. Uh, it will literally take you all day to read through it. Like that's how long someone has dedicated just to this film and trying to interpret it, analyze it in every way possible from, you know, Stephen King's book and how 
that was changed into the movie uh, to basically like the significance of the numbers. Um, it it touches like on so many aspects of uh, this film. Yeah, yeah, there was even like a theory about uh, Indian burial ground because it is a hotel built on an Indian burial ground. Yep. Yeah, because there was definitely a lot of uh, imagery, um, Native American, uh, you could see like designs, you could see in the clothing, um, even in some of the, the pictures there, where they had of like chief Indians. Moccasins. Um, moccasins. Like Wendy had the, on like a, that yellow coat or whatever that had like the, the teepees on them. Yeah. Like, like a clear reference to like some sort of Native American uh, style. And you would always see design. like Native American embroidery either on the walls or like embroidery rugs. And I think uh, when you see like the, the blood coming out, out of the elevators too, that could be another significant thing relating to the, 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 the genocide was... of Native Americans. I think that was touched upon in room 237, which is probably the most, I mean, as far as theories go in that movie, that's probably the most um, straightforward one that makes the most sense, that has the most evidence pointing to it. The rest of them were pretty iffy, in my opinion. But that documentary there just shows you how, how crazy people go for this movie. Like, this movie definitely has, like, one of the biggest, most dedicated fan bases, I think. This, th their fan bases spanned 40 years. That this like name another film that has literally people I've I've literally read people's theses about this movie, mm -hmm. but the psychology of it or the filmmaking behind it, like the golden cemetery scenes that are seen throughout the movie, like the like the the gold room, room they're in the party scene where they it's just the perfect symmetry of like how a shot can should be shot, mm -hmm. like that is one of the like, the filmmaking alone. And, like, the way they recorded this movie is, like, what drew me to it at first. Like, I first watched this movie when I was 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what was going on. I'm going to be 100% honest. My 12-year brain could not fathom it. I was like, whoa, yeah. well, what is this? Can we please turn on um, the Futurama right now? I'm freaking yeah. out. But even with, uh, I mean, even with people like you, me, and, and Zach here, I mean. We're still. We're younger. I mean, granted, we're not quite as young as we once were. But, uh. Even us, it's like we still find this movie fascinating. This came out 12 years before I was even born. And yet we're still exploring, you know, the ideas behind it and are just in complete, you know, fascination with it. And for me, I think I told you this, but uh, I think the only way I would really do it is, is based on the fact that I found kind of that surface layer of the movie entertaining to begin with. Because if I didn't find that entertaining, like the story itself, I probably wouldn't have explored this movie much further. But I think that was just my fascination. That was that was like the first movie I ever saw of Stanley Kubrick. And that's what wanted to get me more into his films and the way he would make a film. And it's just so much different. It's like his own work. It's nothing like anyone else's. It's You know it's his. And I feel like there's few directors or auteurs that can, you know, claim such high standing 
is Kubrick and the attention to detail there. And so, yeah, and, and it's really unique when you say that because, like, I know one attention to detail is people say this is Stanley Kubrick admitting that he faked the moon landing. Yeah, and at this point in time, like, you definitely have to think uh, Kubrick was well aware of some of the theories, um, even if they were maybe a little more out there. But he would go with that. You know, I think Kubrick had to have been one of the first trolls we've ever had. Yeah, like, because I think he was troll and hardcore like, he, he, when he shows Danny with that Apollo 11 shirt. <laughs> like, man, if he, like, if he really believed that, like, if, if he really wanted to, like, the government would have had him assassinated. Hey, put that on a coaster, man. Gosh, what? No. Oh, my God. Ah, it's fine. It's fine. Ah, what is it, savage? So, back to what I was saying. If, like, if he really faked the moon landing, I do not think he would be trolling that hard unless he wanted to get Epstein. Yeah, bro. He would have ended like he would have been, been, uh, committed suicide by shooting himself in the back of the head. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that, just yeah. another opening showcase. Yep. It's a suicide. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, like, when I think that, I think that's just what Kubrick did. He liked to do that, though. He wanted to play off of these people's theories, and I think he, to some degree, I don't know if uh, Kubrick mania was quite as crazy as it probably is like these days, but even in that, those days, I think there was a level there where people were kind of like, you know, especially after 2001. Oh, people were showing up. People were, people were saying like, making up all kinds of theories about that movie. Uh, a Clockwork Orange is another very um, controversial film, you know. And uh, The thing I, that makes me mad is like, Stanley Kubrick has like so many other good movies. Oh yeah. Like the boxing movie? Dang, what's that movie called? Oh, the boxing Killer's Kiss? Yeah, Killer's Kiss. Yeah. Like that I I movies. just watched that recently and I was like, wow, this is a really good like this is a really good movie. Fear and Desire? Yeah. And Spartacus? Doctor Strange? Well, that's that's another thing I found interesting cuz L- Lolita? Yeah, mm. you see there in Kubrick's early works too. It's even in the title just kind of you know how he would put um, violence and sex. Kind, they were kind of in the same realm of his films, like Killer's Kiss, or you'd have uh, Strange, Doctor Strange Love. Um, it's also dealing with the end of you know civilization, of humanity. Yeah. Um, fear and desire. Did I say that one already? Yeah. You, no, you haven't. Fear and desire. Killer's Kiss. You know, you have all those movies. How it's kind of touching on both the concepts of death. And love, and just how they, how closely he binds them together in the film. Like this movie showed like homoeroticism in a way, like his attraction to even Lolita. Yeah, Lo, for, yeah there's definitely got to be some. Lolita was weird. Definitely some parallels here. I feel like to Lolita. Yo, people ain't seen Lolita, man. I don't know, man. They, that's the film yeah. that you got to see just to believe, bro. Yeah. How could they ever make a film about Lolita? How could they ever make a film about Lolita? I think about that all the time. Lolita Express, bro. That's what Jeffrey Epstein must have been a Kubrick fan. <laughs> this, by the way, if you don't know what that means, uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who recently um, passed away, uh, had a plane called the Lolita Express. And if you've seen Lolita, then having an airplane named that is kind of a sketchy thing. Yeah. Like if that wasn't just a dead giveaway right there, like he was, he literally could not have cared at that point. Like he was like, 
he was, know, he's, I'll even name a plane this and see if anyone notices. He was just playing with you at that point. He's like, just, he just that's how little He did not give a fudge. But Zach, what do you think of have you uh, ever like looked up some of the numbers in this? Like, you know, the significance of any of the numbers? Like Oh, you're talking about the room two three seven and all the other numbers that are in the movie. I have not looked at well, well even I like the, the use of forty two like, you'll have, like, Danny has the shirt that has 42 on it. You have the Summer of 42 playing on the TV. Um, and oh, that's right. But it's like, uh, it's almost how they kind of mirror each other, though. It's like the significance of 12 and 21. They're kind of like inversions of each other. 24 and 42. And they appear time and time again in this movie. And I think that... Kubrick became so obsessive about the idea of in, literally inverting everything that even the music, the even duration of shots, um, the even the where how they were shot were all inversions. The of separation of like you you brought up the idea of like how the scene between Danny brushing his teeth and like mm -hmm. staring at the camera, right. and the same with the bear the bear scene. Yeah, like you wondered what is the number difference between those two. Like, like he probably was minutes, like, I need this yeah. to be this rate. It needs to be about seven minutes in, and then that one needs to be about seven like, minutes to it. Like that's like kind of where I feel like was it's like going. Is with this that. this film like and how was, they kind of mirror each other? It was written in the form of the Pythagorean of the. Is it the Pythagorean theorem? The one. Pythagorean theorem. Yeah, the circle, the spinny That's thing. Like the golden, the golden ratio. Yeah, the golden ratio. It's like how it's like tool, like it's like pre-tool. Oh, Pythagorean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how, uh, yeah I know what you're talking about. Like the con. Would use, would use it. Yeah. Go from like one to two to. It's like he. It? It's like he based a scene cool. off of uh, something would happen in the scene based off of that that sequence. I don't think I don't think that's a, true at all. But like that's like. I kind of theorize in my head if that's like a possibility if like he wrote some of his films like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, definitely. I feel like there's not many other directors that were doing that at that time. This point, and I mean, you go watch a movie nowadays. It's like, it's so... It's remix. It's, it is. I mean, it, if it's not CGI, then it's just poorly edited or it's like just not shot the way it could be. And I feel like this movie has uh, set a standard for filmmaking that I feel like it's in the has Smithsonian. It's in the matched. Smithsonian Film Institute. It's like one of the films that's like protected because of its cultural impact and is made on yeah. society. Well, Kubrick was always very protective of his own films too. Yeah, I wonder what Kubrick would think about Doctor Sleep being made today. Dude, man, looking back, Kubrick just was a very odd character. Like, he literally broke down Shelley Duvall for this role. Yeah. Like, 127 takes for that scene. That's the record. Well, I was also watching uh, the, the commentary with Garrett Brown on The Shining, and he talked about the seven minute um, where Dick Halloran is talking to Danny in the, oh, yeah. in the calf, cafeteria. Nice in the kitchen, yeah. and uh, he stated that they did, I believe it was around 148, it was 140 plus takes that they did just on that, and then also that famous bat scene. So he said that they actually did more on that just for that seven minute dialogue than they did 
with uh, Shelly Duvall's with the bat scene there, which is it's pretty surprising because with the shot of Shelly Duvall's character hitting Jack with the bat, it required a lot of physical, you know, it was physical, physically demanding. Um, they had to have a, a, du a body double for Jack's character there. Um, did they really? Yeah, they did. And uh, what? They were just with shooting it. And I mean, it's just crazy to me that somehow a scene with just some dialogue between two characters would amount to more takes. That just shows how Kubrick was when it came to making a movie. Like he literally thought of every process of it. He's he's by far one of the most meticulous directors to have ever been around. like he literally like w I remember watching uh, like a behind the scenes thing with Shelly Duvall like telling her you're ugly <laughs> literally just like saying the most decrepit things just to break this woman down so she get this she could get to the scene better and act it better with pure raw emotion <laughs> he did it all for the art of filmmaking this film is as big as a this and Spring Breakers have had the biggest culture impacts in art <laughs> <laughs> Harmony Corinne. But, I mean, seriously, though, I mean, like, Kubrick literally devoted his life to this. I mean, if Kubrick never made a film, he probably would have lived to be uh, a little bit older than 70 by the time he passed. And I think that the last movie he did, Eyes Wide Shut, is literally what drove him to uh, his own demise, you know? is just how much time and energy he would spend on something like that, literally at the risk of his own health. Like, he would not even pay any attention to it because of that. Do you think Do you think filmmaking is what helped expedite his, uh, his demise? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, you for real think that, like, that's what, like, the way he made his films, like, what wrecked his health? Yeah, because the dude, you have to think, this, this dude is probably not sleeping a whole lot, so he's not getting as much sleep as he should be. Um, at, his, at his age, especially. <clears throat> yeah, um, I just think, you know, you, it's always good to like go outside, you know, do a little bit of everything. You know, balance is always seems to be it's an exercise. Key. But uh, I think Kubrick had so many um, unrealized projects. He, he had no idea what was going on with his own health. And he was, when you spend so much time and energy focusing on subject matter like this, you're not focusing on other issues that may be taking place within your own physical being. If that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Like when you're that dedicated to art, it's like you're addicted almost to oh, yeah. perfection. So. Which you mean Kyle work in a few words. Which I can appreciate that. I extremely appreciate it, but like he literally sacrificed himself. It's like how Christian Bell literally destroys his body for every role he's done. Yeah. How he would go from like a toothpick, what, sixty some pounds to uh for that movie, uh, what the was Machinist. It Machinist, and then he uh, goes to Batman. 
And then goes to, uh, he gains like 60 pounds of fat to be Dick Cheney. Just so, uh, what the director you think nowadays is like today's Kubrick, or that's more similar to his style? Uh, maybe. For me, I'd say Fincher. David Fincher, yeah, for sure, David Fincher. Because I almost said Dennis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. I don't know if he's like. I think he's a very good director. I haven't heard as many uh, stories about his uh, attention to detail or his perfectionism. Um, Harmony Corinne. What about, uh, oh, who is it that did uh, Birdman? And then, oh, Alfonso Corrion. No, no, no. Not him. Oh, Alexander uh, in your E2. Alejandro in your E2. Yeah, in your E2. What about um, Guillermo del Toro? Would you say so? Del Toro is good, but no, not to the, to the extent. It's and it's well. It's just different nowadays. It's different. I feel like you see uh, directors that have a lot more interest. They can have interest in computer graphic as well, or in costume design, um, set design, anything like that. But um, I don't know. Like Kubrick, I, I feel like it was a different time back then, and the genius of back then is a little bit different than what the genius of today would be. It just, I don't know, and it's, I think it's because directors are afraid to go to the lengths that Stanley Kubrick did in his movies, like literally, like torturing his actors to get them. Like Shelley Duvall was not the same after this movie. A lot of directors didn't have the same freedom that Kubrick had, but part of that came from Kubrick. Um, getting out of, you know, Hollywood and going off to uh, Colorado. No, he didn't go to Colorado. He, well, he went to England. Yeah, he went to England. Too. Had his own studio. What's, going on, guys? What's up, Dad? We're recording a podcast. <laughs> oh, no, we got Rudy, we got Rudy Senior in the house. <laughs> what do you think of The Shining? <laughs> Wait, you ever, did you ever watch The Shining growing up? With Jack Nicholson. Hey, here's Johnny. Oh. Never saw it. Yeah, I saw it. You did see it? Yeah. What'd you think? I don't know. Did you like it? <laughs> I don't know what that, John. When, when, when did you see it? The TV. The TV? Yeah. Okay, I got it. Right. I love you, Dad. I love you, Yeah, man. How's so, everything? Good. Good? Good. We're just uh, finishing up. Today, going back to work tomorrow. Sounds good. Yeah. Anything. So like, so like you don't have anything to say about The Shining when you first saw it? Like, what did you what did you think about when you first saw it? I don't know. I we, we didn't watch it, you know. We don't put more attention to what's going on. You didn't think it was that good of a movie? Yeah. All right. Good night. Love you. Love you too, Dad. Oh yeah, that's my so, dad's uh, opinion of the movie. Again, uh, wise, valuable insight from uh, Ruby Senior. <laughs> <laughs> That's the insanity of my family. Uh, where were we at, though? Uh, just talking about the cultural, like, at where actors are willing to go in movies. Like, how many, how, where directors are willing to go to, like, perfect the art of a film. Mm-hmm. Do you think, like, this film set, set boundaries for how directors can act? I think... Yeah. 
Go ahead, Zach. I don't think he could have made this film today. Honestly, I don't think with like the culture we have, and I'm not saying a, like it's a bad thing that we have a culture of protecting mm-hmm. actors and making the community safer, but I just don't think people would ha- would take to his his directing style. Yeah. Oh hell no, dude. What if Lolita? Mm-hmm. Dude, how did the no legitimately? If they try to make a film like Lolita today, it would not. It it it, it would get shut. Overwhelmed. It would not. Like, I remember when the first. I remember when I first watched Lolita. I was I I I am still uncomfortable to this day when even like talking about Lolita with like other people that have seen it because I'm like, man, if you've seen it, we're just a bunch of really messed up individuals. Because that movie, like, I have not met one person like they've seen Lolita. They didn't like Lolita a lot, but it was a film they had to see they saw. Yeah. Uh, very controversial to, to say it lightly. Um, do you guys want me to go over some of the significance of these numbers? Yeah. Because there's actually somebody that uh, posted all the significance of some of these numbers. So, like, the number uh, 12. So, you know how we have room 237... Two plus three plus seven, you get twelve. And the old Overlook has only one call number, and it's KDK twelve. Oh yeah, you're right. Uh, or there would be uh, only one set of bloody elevators, and they're always stopped on floor one and two. Like the that clock, those the kind of eyes that are above those elevators. You see how the you see where the hand is on those ones. It's one and two. So that's interesting. And then you have, um, you know, the time cards, like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., 8 plus 4, 12. Then the 21, you have the July 4th ball, 1921. Or when you get that last final shot of uh, all the pictures and Jack Nicholson's character from that uh, July 4th ball, there's 21 pictures up on the wall. Um, Or there's... uh, 24, where you have Shelley's Duvall's character pulling on the storeroom latch 24 times. Or is that really the, uh, how many elevator. times she did it? <laughs> yeah, like this person like really went to some depth here. Or you see the first vision of blood coming out of the elevator happens only once, and it's exactly 24 seconds long to the frame. Uh, 42, two times three times seven equals 42. Summer of 42 is playing. You see 42 on Danny's, no, uh, on his shirt. 
Um, you see Jack break down the apartment door with his axe only once, and it takes him exactly 42 seconds. Oh my gosh. Like, like this is this is insanity here. And the thing is, Kubrick did this on purpose. Like Kubrick definitely did not throw things he into edit, his film. Like he did he did all the final editing of his film. Like he did the final cut. He didn't throw things into the film willy nilly. He threw he, them in there. And I think Kubrick always stated too was that he uh, could do without any of the, the filming, any of the dealing with the actors, any of that. But the thing that kept him going was the editing process. He said that that was by far his favorite thing to do. Is like once the film was finished, he could just go in. He could do all the editing of the film, and he—it was his, that's where it became his art. I mean, it's insane. And you can definitely tell, like he, this felt like when it came to his movies, he never stopped at at the least amount of effort. Like he made his actors go to, and go to the fullest. And like this is honestly like one of my top Jack Nicholson roles, next to a few good men. Oh yeah. Yeah, Jack Nicholson, uh, he had some hits back in the day, man. He had Chinatown, he had One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, he did really good in The Departed, though, not going to lie. Even The Departed, I mean, that was a good one. I mean, Ooh, and One Flew Over the uh, Cuckoo, uh, the Cuckoo's Nest. That's another good film by him. Yeah. I don't know if, if, if any of you guys are book fans, which you probably aren't because their generation forgot how to read. It's a really good book to read. But, yeah, so Nicholson was hitting it pretty big on films he was i think he had won an academy award by that time by is the this the film where like someone won an academy award and they invited a native american speaker to accept the award for it no, that was marlon brando and the godfather and that was his uh basically his stance dang bro not accepting the award we need more of those today bro we need i hope caitlin dever does we that do have like, everyone these days is that are those I hope Kalen Dever does that. <laughs> I hope that happens for Booksmart. <laughs> There's my one for the episode. I'm refusing in the name of Native American genocide. In the name of Malala. But, um, so, hey, so, Zach, when you first watched this film, how old were you and what did you think about it the first time you ever saw it? You watched this with me, right? I watched it. It's, uh, I watched this with Kyle for the first time. That's right. We watched it in college together. He's got it. Okay, okay, whatever, whatever. So I watched it on a crummy TV. And, <laughs> uh, I just did not know what to think of it. Because I, I, I wasn't really into horror films. This is probably yeah, this is my funny. first initiation in it, really, into that genre. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. Your skin is what really makes it a, a classic. And uh, I, so I didn't really care for it. I was like, Kyle, why are you making me watch this? 
Well, objectively, it completely mirrors itself, and uh, even the pacing is probably perfect in the way that Kubrick needed it to be. Especially with all the editing he did. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, this, this changed it, like, it changed the how I view films, honestly. This was, like, I think the first movie where I really understood, like, you could make an impact on people and just how they view things, like, even their own personal beliefs. I think Kubrick always questioned, uh, this is a movie that's supposed to be about ghosts, but, um, I don't know. I think Kubrick himself was agnostic, right? Was he really? If I'm not mistaken. Did, did he? I think he was a little more agnostic. And uh, man, there's no way so this, this guy is not your typical ghost movie. It's kind of uh, the possibility is there, but the more likely thing in this story is that uh, Danny is being, you know, sexually abused by his own father, um, and he's going through a manic state. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely interesting concepts in here. And if you think about it too, what else was being made around that time? Like what other scary movies were being made around that time? I um, mean, I'm trying to think. You had some of John Carpenter's movies. I know The Thing came out like a few years after. Also a good movie. Yeah. Halloween, The Fly. Yeah. Friday the 13th. Black Christmas. That was like that whole era of Chainsaw. Like that whole era of horror films came out then. Yeah, I and think then the '90s has had god awful horror films, and then there's some good horror films in the '90s. You're right. I'm just critical. Seven was good. Do we consider Seven a horror? Movie? Seven's a thriller, bro. Let's be for real. There's some good. There's some good stuff though. '90s was actually a really good film era. Okay, yeah. I, I I I changed that. Early 2000s. Like I think at mil- yeah, most movies made in the early 2000s were terrible. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, this was something unique in its own way. It uh, was exploring other ideas that a lot of the films of that time were not doing. There were more slasher films. And maybe they were, uh, you know, attempting to do something, but they were not nearly as fully realized uh, as Kubrick's vision for his film. When it comes to Kubrick films, where does this lie for you? This and is my like, favorite Kubrick film. Really? Above 2001 Space Odyssey? Yes. Yes, this is, this is my favorite film of all time. This will be my all time. Man, this is your book uh, smart. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I told Rudy, <laughs> I think I've watched this more, more times than I care to admit. But... Uh, <laughs> Even sometimes I just like have it in the background. It's like I have a, like this scary mu- uh, movie that's like with this jarring music that's like very unsettling, and I'll just I'll just be playing it in the background. But uh, it's like it's interesting because you all like even now it's like I was picking up on um, some new things. It's like having these epiphanies or just these realizations, you know, that come to mind uh, of this film. And it's like it's amazing how a film can change over time based on your subjective uh, view of the world, you know? It's like, as I get older and, you know, I experience different things, this movie hits me in a different way every single time. 
I think that's the power of films and what uh, the possibility can be for films. I think for sure when you like when you say, when you say it like that, I think this up here it's really hard for me to say. So when it comes to when it comes to Kubrick films, th th this and a Full Metal Jacket are uh, are tied for my two favorite films, and then like. Honestly, I don't know. Full Metal Jacket just had a big like, impact on me. Full Metal Jacket literally is the movie that made me sign my life away to the army. And <laughs> the Shining just like it's a good film like to break down and study when it comes to that aspect. But Full Metal Jacket just like the nihilistic philosophy of sex and violence <laughs> is just so like like it's it's they're intertwined. I know yeah. it just like excites me. But The Shining just has this level of like. Oh, thinking like, oh yeah, like 2001 Space Odyssey, yeah. For a while, that was my favorite movie. Yeah, it's up there, definitely. And then like, Fear and Desire is alright. Spartacus was decent. Spartacus, uh, Kubrick actually kind of denounced Spartacus. Really? Because I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that he wasn't able to do a lot of things he wanted to do on it. He had some original ideas that didn't get used. He, I don't know if he even had final cut of the film. No, he didn't write the movie. He came on. He came on after. That was the only film like where it wasn't like his own original, right? I mean, he he no, he brought he used some source material from other stuff, adapted screenplays, but uh, no, like he definitely had that was probably the movie he had the least control over. You know, some of the editing, the overall production of the film. Even above, even above. Um AI, you think he didn't have as much creative control of that because he kind of just died? He was dead already by the time that movie came out. And then there's all good old Lolita, which I've only met one person whose movie, his favorite Kubrick movie was Lolita. And Lolita's uh, up there for me, actually. It's in my top five. Are you joking? Not joking. It's up there. I respect that. If I'm going to say what I think is... Kubrick's most overrated film, I'd probably say Dr. Strangelove. And his most underrated film, I would put as Eyes Wide Shut. Okay, I agree with Eyes Wide Shut. I almost want to say The Shining is his most overrated film. I just can't say that because it's my favorite. It can still be your favorite, but it's like overrated in a way. Like people, like, I know people that have like the red rum tattoos that have never, I've met one or two people that have red rum tattooed on them, have never finished The Shining or even watched it. That's infuriating. Yeah, like when I heard that, I'm like, there. I was like, this is ridiculous. You literally put something on your body for the rest of your entire existence, and you don't even know what movie it came from. You don't even understand the reference, the meaning of it. Oh, like, oh, <laughs> you're, you're the worst Uber East driver ever. Go murder yourself because that's what it reads backwards, right, Zach? Right. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Stanley Kubrick is what David Lynch wanted to be. <laughs> That's funny that you said that about David Lynch because uh, Kubrick actually had a lot of his uh, cat, his cast and crew watch David Lynch's Eraserhead multiple times to get Prior to a frame of mind prior to filming. That and uh, Rosemary's Baby, and uh, there was one more I thought. I don't remember what it was. Goodness I, man. Uh, dude, I don't know. I don't know if you'd like it, Zach. But uh, yeah, dude, it's, it's a Racerhead is a rough movie, bro. It, it's it's a hard watch. But um, 
Kubrick loved it. Kubrick thought it was incredible. But, uh, yeah. Um, what do we think of the overall acting? <laughs> Let's start with the worst actor of the whole movie. Just jumping. Yeah, just jumping, like just screaming at every time he is hitting the door. And actually, if you guys have ever watched that uh, documentary, like the behind the scenes kind of, like where uh, Kubrick's daughter's shooting, like behind the scenes. Kubrick actually talks about that specific scene with her. He's like, it, it's, you're, if you're jumping every time, it just seems totally fake. Like, he even talked about how she was overacting. And it's just like a, a snippet of the amount of abuse that Shelley Duvall had to take on that. Like, she did very good in some parts because, and I think a lot of that stemmed from her treatment on, like, behind the scenes. But then there's moments like that where, so she was very inconsistent maybe yeah i just think i i think as they filmed the movie the amount of action she did either was like got a lot better but then there's times where she, I, that she totally whiffed it and i'm not a director i'm not an actor okay technically i am i'm, I'm a member of a thespian society because i did theater but like i've seen overact over overacting and yeah, I could tell, but it didn't take away from the movie. No. Have you ever seen movies that like, if there was definitely overacting and it just ruined the movie? Yes. Like this, yeah, I agree with you on that. It, it, it wasn't enough that it would ruin this movie. And, uh, and I think that to some extent is almost what Kubrick wanted. He didn't want like a Hollywood actress. He didn't want your typical looking actress for this role. Because in the book, in the book, um, Wendy's character is blonde, beautiful, and very strong and independent. Yeah. Kubrick does the inversion of what that character would be. Yeah. And I just think he, he knows how to, like, he knows what to take out and take in. And funny enough, Stephen King hates this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, he just hates it. No, like, definitely. Like, that's the funniest thing ever is, like, he despises this whole, this movie. And I just think it's funny just because, like, a lot of people praise this as, like, the best Stephen King adaptation out there you know it, the, the, the fact of the matter is there's two adaptations right and that the second one was the one that King did himself and it was very poorly received <laughs> compared to this it's like he wanted to try to make it better and in the process he ended up making, making something that was just not like, even close making something that I think God left earth and that's what happened <laughs> And to quote the leftovers, God sat this one out. <laughs> um, yeah, Jack Nicholson's character, I, I feel like that was probably the, uh, an easier role for him to play than um, Shelley Duvall's character. And the reason is because for his state of mind, he's supposed to overact. He's supposed to have the crazy eyes and like the weird motions and the weird mannerisms and go over the top on everything because that's what the character calls for. So I feel like with Jack Nicholson, that's why you never hear about Kubrick and being, you know, over the top with Jack because he just gave Jack Nicholson this advice to just 
go over the top on mostly everything. And I don't feel like you have to tame something that is just complete madness too much. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Normally, I, normally when I watch a child actor, I cringe, but uh, uh, this was not one of those movies. Danny's acting was actually uh, pretty good overall. I, you know, you could maybe uh, say like he looks like he's having like an aneurysm or something. Oh yeah, every time like, he every... has the realization or whatever of uh, um, Jack, uh, his his father, uh, going off on uh, Wendy. In the bedroom scene, oh, yeah. and he's like, kind of just like shaking, like <laughs> that. Maybe that he was sh- a little tough. He shakes when he shakes when Dick gets killed too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Dick in the book has. Well, he screams. Yeah, well, he screams. Because Dick That's has the shining, and so does um, and also one of a weird connection. I was I was watching this YouTuber called uh, CZ World, and he hypoth he hypoth- he brought up the idea. Of that the kids in it have the shining to some extent because in the book because right. it's written by Stephen King so Stephen King has this huge thing called the macroverse it's like the MCU but uh, not as convoluted with superheroes but um, Dick is mentioned in it or somewhere well, I guess there's a Stephen King character I mean a, a uh, the shining character mentioned in it and, and I believe it's Dick I'm not for sure don't quote me on it. And it just shows like the vastness of like how big Stephen King's universe is. But um, if you're, but Stanley Kubrick was able to make this film in a way where it doesn't need to be connected to a much broader universe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I thought was weird that Dr. Sleep is coming out like 40 years later. Yeah. So we're going to get book smart too when I'm like 32 with kids or grandkids because of my bad parenting. I believe that too. I'm excited to see it, I, and I I think like that 40 years of in between. I mean, I, I think to some extent, some of that has to do with Kubrick. I think Kubrick wanted to protect his uh, his material. Art. He wanted to protect his art. Died about 20 years later, and uh, and now about 20 years after his death, and they're coming out with something. Uh, yeah, I did like uh, some of the supporting actors. I thought Scatman Crothers did a good job. I that thought, he did. Barry Nelson played Stuart Ullman. 
did find uh, a couple guys that were kind of typical uh, actors that Kubrick employed were Philip Stone as Delbert Grady and uh, Joe Turkle as Lloyd. So they've made multiple appearances in Kubrick films prior to that. Um, really? As well as, yeah. What are those? Philip Stone, he did uh, Barry Lyndon in A Clockwork Orange, I believe. Joe Turkle, he was in uh, Paths of Glory and maybe one other one, I can't recall for sure. But uh, yeah, I think those were a few uh, English actors that Kubrick liked to have. And, uh, which is kind of surprising for a director of Kubrick's stature and just the demanding you know, nature of his films. It's, it's amazing blowing. that actors would want to try to do it more than once. <laughs> but as a supporting actor, maybe it's a little easier than being the main. Maybe after, like, like since they already knew Kubrick, like, they knew what his expectations and how freaking insane he was. Well, yeah. Like, he's, he, like, Stanley Kubrick, there's no way. Like, when it comes to directors that have a twist in mind, it's like Stanley Kubrick, uh, Lars Van Trier, Gus Van Sant, and uh, the guy that made the movie Teeth, those guys have, there's something up there that's unscrewed yeah. that we need to figure out, but, like, I also respect the work that they do. But Stanley Kubrick did it in like a less gratuitous manner. Like Lars von Trier movies are actually disgusting to watch. Like they're so hard to watch. They can almost make you physically sick. Whereas Kubrick's movies are still like in awe. Like that's just beautiful. Like you're not going to be grossed <laughs> yeah. out. Nothing will gross you out yeah. like in the watching of a uh, Stanley Kubrick film like The Shining. Like you'll get creeped out because you won't understand, understand it. But when it comes to like on a Gus Van Sant and Lars, or, Lars von Trier. Like, have you seen The House on the Right, whatever the new Lars Venture movie that came? The House on oh, Jack Girl? Yeah. I like, did watch it. Oh, I actually liked it. Yeah, it's good. Up like, until, like, the last dude. Uh, 10 or 15 minutes where it's just him talking with, uh, who is it that he was talking with? Like, doggone, man. Like, there's so much, like, nastiness in there. And I'm like. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, he's a very unlikable character. Dude, Gus Venture literally said, I am a Nazi. Oh. In an interview, and people were like, "Okay, like I've I watched." Do, I do think he said he was joking on that. Like, yeah, no, was joking. You can't but, say that, bro. That was like in two thousand. He was banned from uh, like every major movie festival in America for a while, even Sundance. <laughs> I'm gonna be bitch. Yeah. But uh, um, should we get into uh, you know how many spooks overall we're gonna give this? I want well, the one thing I want to bring up. The infamous twin scene isn't in the book. I mean, isn't in the movie. So where does it come from? I mean, it, it is in the book. Stanley Kubrick just threw that in there. It was just another film trope. Yeah, I'm reading right now like a list of things. Um, like, you know, all work, no play makes Jack a dull boy. Mm-hmm. Not in the book. That's 
Yeah, that's it. I mean, it, and it kind of harkens back to, you know, the use of the mirrors, of uh, reflection, of inversion, and how you have the two twins. Um, kind of Jack Nicholson's inability to uh, look at within his own character. Like, he doesn't like to look in mirrors after a while. He stops looking in the mirror because he can't face what he's done to his own son. You know, it's it's kind of just the whole theme is just kind of presented small little idea by little idea and it just kind of gets the whole idea overall across with just a little thing here a little thing there a little thing there so Oh yes, yes, we do need to talk about that because that's like there's just so much of the film we can talk about for like hours. It's just like, <laughs> um, so the way I've kind of always viewed it, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just that he's a reincarnation of uh, all the he's the of all the manifestations like of the hotel, everything that has uh, shined, everything that has not prior. basically. To, uh, it, like, what's the significance of that that era, like the 1920s? Like, what he, is it? That, Stephen King has a book called 1922, which was made into a Netflix series. And this was 1921. Yeah. When that July 4th ball is taking place in the picture. Yeah. So. Yeah, and then like the gold room, the gold room, the ballroom scenes are, uh, you know, 1920s-esque. Uh, and the music, I heard that Kubrick wanted music from, from specifically from that time uh, to put in there. So it, there was definitely some uh, purposeful, you know, inclusion of that era into the film. And so... I mean, it was kind of creepy, and it was uh, years gone by, and you could make it kind of haunted in that way. I think, I think with that, I think he, like, it was the '80s, so they're freshly coming off of the Vietnam War, and like the chaos that was that. Mm-hmm. And I think he was trying to take people away from that for a moment, sure. and so they chose a not too far past. But then they chose like mixing it with the 1920s, which was an era that like most of those people hadn't seen done in film. Okay, they have because the, true. the yeah. Godfather was around, but yes, but that was the 1940s. Yeah, 
the yeah, I do think I almost feel like I had heard that that uh, they felt that there was not a whole lot um, that that was not a very explored era at that time in film. Yeah, and that was something they wanted to. Plus, if you think the 1920s was like, um, a, it was like they had the big boom. It was like a just a, a booming generation. Uh, yeah, like that was that was like looked at as like a golden era before the Great Depression hit. Yeah. And, and maybe it's, you know, it's going back to that. That ending, I remember when I first saw it, I, that ending made no sense to me when I saw like a picture of Jack and he's in it. You know, I was like, wait, what? I didn't pay attention to it till like I had to like read about it on Reddit. Mm-hmm. I was like, The Shining, and there's a whole entire Shining subreddit. Like, I have a Shining tie. <laughs> That's dedication, man. Like, I love Stanley Kubrick. It's just like, he chose a time period to portray so well when it came to the like the lingo and how the people act and how like everyone dressed. It's just like he was able to pick that up and do so well with it. I heard he would play like uh, hundreds or like thousands of uh, records to get the right music that he wanted for that, that specific time period. I bet. I bet also it drove everyone mad. Oh, yeah. Like, just even selecting the music that would be in the ballroom scene that was, like, for a couple minutes. He probably didn't. He yeah, spent he, that much time on. Stanley Cooper scene. probably didn't sleep for, like, weeks on end when this film was getting made. He probably got a full three hours during all the filming. During the entire, like... <laughs> the entire filming process. Yeah. So, um... Oh, that's all I gotta say. I'll start it off. So, like, I give this movie, like, nine out of ten spooks. Like spookies. Okay. It's 9 out of 10 scaries. Spookies and scaries. Zach, what do you give it? Well, I gotta give this a, a 9 out of 10 spooks. I mean, it just creeps you out when you watch it. All the camera work is genius. And, I mean, it's not overly scary, but it does get under your skin and it's kind of hypnotic. Absolutely. This, uh, to me, I would describe this movie as haunting a little bit. And yeah. just, it's, it's almost interesting, like, how, um, you know, how you have Jack Nicholson when uh, Wendy drags him into the, uh, um, where all the food is, the food pantry, and locks the door on him. And you hear Delbert Grady's character talking to Jack, but you don't ever see that character. And then the door opens somehow, and you're left to wonder, like, who actually opens the door? Was it a ghost? Was that, like, was it Danny? Was it Wendy? Did she, like, feel, feel bad and forgive Jack? Like, and I think that's just this whole movie. It's a, it's a complete enigmatic masterpiece that is a mystery and is haunting to this day. Uh, I'm going to give it a 10 out of 10, man. This heat. This is the first one I'm giving a 10 out of 10 because it's my all-time favorite movie. This has changed the way I view films, the way I think films could be made. It was my first experience with Stanley Kubrick as the director where I wanted to get more into all of his other films. Uh, so, 10 out of 10, easy. Yeah, that's our first 10 out of 10, bro. 
I don't know. Have we had a 10 out of 10 on anything else? I think the closest is like Midsommar. Yeah, so this is, like I said, man, I think this set the standard for how a horror movie could be made. Not only horror movies, but how films in general could be made. I think this film actually touched like your heartstrings and like was able to pull from your emotions to scare you. Because like, I feel like movies, definitely movies this year, like they just chose like god awful top. Pet Cemetery, awful. And I it, thought the trailer was so good for Pet Cemetery. Dude, I thought it was going to be terrifying. I was like laughing. It was like a comedy movie. It was not movie. good. But I just feel like there's just a lot of disappointment um, like, out there. It's just so rare to find. Like, this is a year of Stephen King remakes or sequels. There's like literally four. Yeah. 1922, Pet Cemetery, It, and then Doctor Sleep next month. And so they better not mess this up because this is a damn good movie. And they, if they like... If they turn into a bunch of trailer trash, I'm gonna be so butthurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kubrick's direction, man, was it was. Don't kill Kubrick, bro. Don't do him like that, bro. He's part of that, bro. Zach, you got any more thoughts to add? Um, I don't think so. I think that. I mean, there's so much that you can really talk about this movie, but uh, I think yeah. he did a good job of getting the general, uh, general ideas out there. Cause there's a ton of. Yeah, so anybody that is interested uh, in actually watching the film, uh, anybody that's interested in film, eventually getting into, you know, even filmmaking, like, this is a movie that is just a must-have. Like, it's it's like one of the top ones. You have to watch this movie. Like, if you so, don't watch it, like, if you don't watch this movie, then I don't think you can call yourself, like, a film critic. Yeah. Because, like, I know people, like, oh, I'm into movies. And I'm like, have you seen The Shine? Like, no. I'm like, you're not into movies. Yeah. It is like people, like when it comes to like, I know that's extremely pretentious of me, but I feel like I have the right because I've watched a lot of movies. Yeah. Like all my, I have friends that like, I like, um, I have friends that go to, I have two people that I went to high school with that uh, studied film and this is their favorite movie. Yeah. And one of them, like you would never expect them to this be their favorite movie. I thought Legally Blonde was her favorite movie. <laughs> Well, what about uh, the Toy Story creator, Zach, or uh, the one of the writers for Toy Story? Oh, what is yeah. his name? Uh, the main Lee Unkrich. Lee Unkrich has a whole yeah. website that is devoted to this movie because it's his favorite all-time movie. And this is a guy who did, didn't he do Coco? Yes, he did Coco, Toy Story 3, also worked on a lot of the early Toy Stories. In fact, Toy Story, the original, has uh, in this room, or in this house, the carpet is a design of the carpet in that's right. There's a lot of good references there. Also, Toy Story 4 has a nice little homage to it. I think we talked about it in the podcast, but uh, there was a, that music that plays in the gold room is actually playing when they That's right. The, yep. the, uh, the uh, what do you call that? In that little shop, the antique the shop. shop. Yeah. The antique shop, yeah. Yeah. That's all. I also noticed that. But uh, this is, like, for some reason, it's like, that carpet is so famous. This is, like, the only movie I know where the carpet pattern is famous. Like, it's no, its own character. It's like, that's insane. To like, me. people see it, like, um, I, uh, there's a history teacher at the high school I coach or meet, like, or just show up to practices, whatever you want to call it. And he found curtains that, like, are not exactly the hotel carpet, but it's close to it. And I, like, said, like, you a Kubrick fan? He, like, nodded. And I'm like, huh. It's like, it's something that people can bond over. Like, I have a Stanley Kubrick. I have the, to- I have my, I have a tie in the pattern of the hotel 
mm-hmm. hotel's carpet. And like people, like one person we commented on it because like my beloved, my, my beloved. <laughs> and it happened to be the pastor. <laughs> yeah. He's like, my beloved mother has no idea what The Shining is. I don't think she even cares to watch movies. And, and here you, we are talking about it for like two hours. <laughs> and you heard my dad's opinion. Um, he didn't really care for it. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll definitely have to add that the the father's uh seniors uh in put input on it. Yeah. It's definitely um uh, my I grew up with two people that like my dad's favorite movie was the Rambo series. And my mom's favorite movie was the Selena movie. I think that's interesting because I feel like my parents are a lot similar in how, like, in just how uh, their opinions of film. Like, movies are entertainment form and nothing more. Like, they are the sum of their parts. They're nothing more than that. Like, for me, it's like I've always viewed it differently. And it's kind of like how your parents are. And uh, My dad fought in a war, man. He's... He's like, he fought. He fought in a war in his early twenties, man. He literally stressed himself out making sure guys wouldn't die under his command. I think, I think he's just trying to relax. I, I think so. I think it's that, and I think it's our way of rebelling against that. And my you mom's just trying to go, chill. People go to movies to escape a lot, um, and that's good to an extent. But I, I, I think we are looking for something more, something else. So, so I, yeah. I think that's uh, just something that we've always found an innate interest in. Mm-hmm. For sure. So. For sure. you think like some people really take for granted what goes into making a film like they could literally have like it's like as if there was a Vincent Van Gogh painting and you just put it right next to your toilet (laughs) 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 like that you know like it's just the the, you know have an appreciation for something you know that's what I say appreciate the art man and I just feel like that's what some films like are so devoid of which is surprising to say because like I'm like the biggest hater of Marvel films, but yet I see every Marvel film that is, mm-hmm. and I get extremely into the lore despite the fact I hate the whole series. Yeah, I may be just the biggest Marvel fan ever. Like I'm, I'm a huge a comp- closet Marvel. Fan I'm a closeted Marvel fan just because like I've seen all the movies multiple times, and I have never fallen asleep in any of the movies. Yeah, only movie I ever. I oh, actually I didn't even fall asleep in Gotti, and that movie was like one of the worst. <laughs> the John Travolta movie. Yes, dude. It was- <laughs> Dude, that movie was terrible. Zach, um... There is definitely a place, yeah. They walk so those movies could run. Yeah. That's true. And so that more original content can be created. I'm really hoping, like, there's going to be a, a renaissance of, like, original, like, ideas coming out. Yeah. 
Well, I think it's something that has to happen. It's like you go through a period of time where it's like, like, like one of like some up and coming horror, like Hereditary, Midsommar, Witch with with Anna Taylor Joy, um, mm-hmm. a ghost story. Yep. It comes at night. Those are definitely horror or thriller movies that definitely definitely captivated me in like many ways. And I just feel like horror movies these days are so cheesy, bro. They're so corny, mm-hmm. bro. Like scary stories that tell the dark wasn't even scary. I was like confused. I didn't like it. No. It's like David Lynch directed it and made it good. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, I think those original ideas are out there. I just think uh, you know these production companies have to uh, show trust in uh, you know in what they're going to be putting out there. I think I think film companies are starting to do that because we saw the success of Lady Bird. Mm-hmm. Three Billboards in Ebenezer, Missouri, Eighth Grade. Mm-hmm. Like those movies, dude, I guarantee you Booksmart is going to get nominated. I know like everyone, like all my friends around me probably hate the fact that like I bring up Booksmart in every you film. You bring movie. up Booksmart more than any other movie I've ever heard you talk about. <laughs> like Booksmart. Uh, it is, bro. You shine when you watch that. <laughs> the thing is, that movie came out this year. And like the thing is, I can't, I don't relate to Booksmart whatsoever. I relate more to The Shining than I do Booksmart. Which is scary. <laughs> That's for you to know, me to find, me to know, me to find out. Is everyone listening? Well, I'm playing on it. I think, I think it's time to wrap this up. It's uh, I think the, this is probably one of our longest episodes we've recorded. Oh yeah. Of Brady Reviews. Well, and to be honest, I mean, this it, is something that could, I mean, last for days. This just isn't. This isn't something you can just delve into and just get it done within an hour. I mean, it, there's so much to this film. We left so much out too. That's the thing. There's so there's layers to this film that like we just didn't touch. And don't yeah. be angry about it because I know someone like, oh well, you didn't bring this up. But yeah, oh, freaking fantastic. Maybe there, we'll have a part two. And we'll have you on it if you really. Well, I'll have a part two of The Shining. Doggone it. If you really want a part two of the shot, I'll, uh, I'll give it to someone. Spending uh, two hours talking about one film. I mean, that we're almost going to go the whole length of what the film actually is. Yeah. <laughs> like my parents, it's, Just talking about it. It's going to be tomorrow morning, and my parents are going to come down and be like, yeah, it's still recording. Oh, yeah. You want Wavos and Ancheros? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm like Jesse Pinkman over here, bro. I love my Wavos and Ancheros. Um, yeah, uh, uh, next week we'll be recording an episode probably about the Joker. And then after that, El Camino. If um, I definitely plan on doing an episode about that. Um, co-host Kyle and co-host Matt will be busy moving. So we'll be on a hiatus for like a quick like week and a half. Or if I just find someone to record with. We might find next week. We might have one next week. I don't know about after that. Yeah, after that, it would be busy. It depends on how chaotic my schedule is because I just live a very chaotic lifestyle. Um, I work nights, so um, if you ever want to get in contact with me, texting me at night actually works the best because I'm up. Or Facebook message, messages. If you if you know how to get a hold of me, just get a hold of me. And if you don't, um, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm I I might make a Facebook page or an Instagram or, or some page to get a hold of people, but I like I'm making this as grassroots as possible. This is like a so if you have a movie you want to watch or suggest, just let me know. Um, yeah, that's all I have to say. You have to say any closing words, Kyle and Zach? I don't think so. I think, thank you to Zach for joining in yeah. with us over the phone. Yeah, thanks a lot, Zach. Zach, yeah. we'll hit you back up.
Lights yeah, back up, and uh, yeah, man, for sure. Yeah, we'll see this going, man. Reddit reviews out. <laughs>